Welcome to The Village Lantern, a podcast for families living with hidden challenges, such as autism and other neurodiverse conditions, and for anyone else wanting to understand, love, and support. Our mission is to build understanding, empathy, and love for families living with one or more children who have hidden conditions that make life harder in one way or another. We call this Extra Zing. At one parent-teacher evening, a teacher said to me, it's not my role to be made fun of. And I'm thinking to myself, wow, it probably is, actually. <laughs> but anyway, so bad leadership from me, I must say, in the family, uh, on all fronts. And my wife, Deborah, is an educator. You know, we support the kids rather than the institution. And then I get a phone call at the end of year seven. But the principal says, Mr. Mark, his teachers don't think he's funny. So this is like a phone call out of the blue. His teachers don't think he's funny. So I say what any comedian would say, but do his classmates think he's funny? And he said, Mr. Mark, it's questions like that that put Bill in the predicament in which he finds himself today. And he was expelled. Episode 7, Parenting with Love, Protection and Comedy. Rodney Marks has been a comedian since 1991, using hoaxes and jokes to bring light and joy to private and public events and corporate sessions. Rodney is hilarious, as well as deeply kind and caring and has a beautiful knack for exploring the human experience with both lightness and depth. In this conversation, Rodney shares the captivating, unique and ultimately awe-inspiring journey of one of his boys, who is, though never formally diagnosed, most likely somewhere on the autism spectrum. Hey, Jordan. How are you going? Hey, hey, Anna. I'm doing well. I'm nice doing well. Nice to see you. It's nice to see you too. How, how are you going? Mm, meh. 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 Well, look, I've got, I've got, a, I've got a joke to, to maybe brighten up your mood. Oh, okay. okay. I thought of this just as we were going live. Oh, so. This is really amazing. <laughs> knock, knock. Who's there? It, Rodney Marks, the comedian. He's, he's who we've got for today. What's the punchline? It, it, it's like, you know, those like anti-jokes where it's like, ah, oh, ah. Oh. Yeah, no. no. Okay. okay. Look, I'm a bit of a sound technician, so mm. I think we have sound effects okay. for moments Give it like something. this. Give it something. <laughs> I'm not going to let you press those uh, buttons too often. Somehow that made me feel even worse. <laughs> it made me feel <laughs> I know. Oh, gosh. Well, look, luckily Rodney's funny. Luckily he's got a few uh, funny gags because I'm officially retiring from the humour game. So I don't know. You know I love comedy. I think you love comedy. I really love comedy. And so when I met Rodney and as I got to know him, um, it's so nice to know a comedian who's also this very deep, sensitive intellectual. And so I think this really comes out in this conversation. He talks about one of his boys, but we get to know the way he sees the world. And I just think it's a beautiful story. Hey, Anna, you know what they say about intellectuals? Uh-oh. They, oh, get, God. they get good marks. Rodney Marks. Oh, do you know what? Wait, is that? I don't hate yes. it. Yes. Okay, let's see. I, I don't know any of the other sound oh, effects. No. So this, do you need to? Yeah, i got to do Go one on. more, but this could be anything. Okay. Oh! <laughs> 
We're going to put stickers next to them, dude. Just for context, we've got like 12 coloured buttons here. Can so we turn that off now? Yeah. We have like 12 coloured buttons and we don't know what any of them do. Um, mm. So I... I really thought it was going to be something uplifting. Should but we still be novices at episode seven? Yeah. Well, we are. Well, we are. Here we are. Guys, it's a great episode and we hope you love it and enjoy. See you guys. I feel like we could talk and talk, Rodney. What is it like growing up in the home when your dad's a comedian? I mean, I probably need to ask the boys rather than you, but what is life like when, you're, when your job is a comedian in a family? Well, I can remember the, the kids not being old enough to – go to the comedy store uh, because alcohol was served and you had to be over 18. But it was okay for them to be in the lighting box up this rickety ladder with uh, scaffolding and um, I hope the electrics were, were okay, but who knows. And so they would, uh, they would see lots of comedy and a lot of comedy is subversive. So it gave them a healthy... Um, Skepticism of, of of captains of industry, of political leaders, and so on, and of, of non-profit uh, sector uh, leaders. And uh, before it was uh, really uh, front-page news that some of these uh, leaders were uh, just uh, not so great. Mm. Um, so, yeah, what was it like for them? We had used to have an act called the Boy in the Box. And uh, was a way of taking the kids on tour, so they would just be in a box on stage. We just pick up a box wherever we were, and at one stage they'd pop out of the box and I'd ask them questions, and they didn't have to listen to the questions; they just knew the answer. The first one was yes, the second one was no, and the third one was maybe, and that was that was their meal ticket, if you like, or their plane ticket. Uh, so yeah, they've grown up in suitcases. They always knew how to pack. They were always happy to be passed around to other people, uh, you know, as babies and then never had any um, real separation, anxiety. Social, social. Awesome. I think one of the reasons that we connected on this topic was I was sharing information about what's been going on with my daughter and you quite quickly shared with me that your that one of your boys, you felt that he probably was also on the autism spectrum, but that there hadn't been any formal diagnosis around that. And so one of my questions was, um, what made you think that he was and why you decided not to pursue a formal diagnosis? Well, we think that because he has interests that he pursues to the nth degree, uh, that that's probably a, a, a trigger, and those interests started out early. So, and also, just he was kind of he would look at situations and question them. So he, he didn't have any fear of authority. So I can tell you a couple of stories that 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 might help. Uh, Bill is the youngest of three boys, uh, so I remember him. Uh, they shared a bedroom for a number of years, his first years, and I can remember him standing up in his cot looking at his brothers. That's, uh, just, so I thought, well, that's very interesting. Rather than chattering away, he wasn't competing with them. He was just looking at them. And studying them? I don't think them? he was baffled. Did it Sorry? look like study, studying them? 
Yeah. Yes, I yes. had the same thing with my daughter. I remember she used to walk up to people, like really like those stare bear kind of eyes, you know, like people would say, don't stare, but she would walk up to other families and just observe, like study. It's so interesting that you say that. Um, you know, it was, uh, he is a lovely, a lovely uh, young man. He was a lovely child. Um, another story I, I, uh, I'm fond of is that uh, at his infant school or primary school, uh, but when he was an infant, he uh, uh, there was a playground with lots of large trees, and around the trees was a square little border, a low, a low, um, low fence, very low, you know, ankle high, and the children were not allowed to step in this fence, and his teacher told me that he had stepped in the fence, had his back to the huge tree and was looking out. And she said to him, don't you know that you're not allowed in there? He said, yes. Well, why are you in there? And he said, well, I just wanted to know what it would be like. Uh, and to her great credit, she you know, walked over this little barrier and stood next to him and just stood next to him and, and they both looked out together. Oh. So I thought that was good teaching. Yes. Um, he had trouble at school, uh, so going forward to senior primary, where he would try and get everything right. So if there was a an essay to be done on, on the stars, he would want to know, impossibly, but he didn't realise it, he would have known to know every planet, every star, every everything about it before he presented. And then, of course, he would miss the deadline because, you know, perfection... Mm-hmm. Perfectionism is is a is a curse, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so perfect is the enemy of the good. So he would um, get results that weren't really indicative of his knowledge. Mm. And then we liked to give our children money weekly, but not for not for nothing, not just. So um, for many years, the kids, each of the boys, got five dollars if they could write a joke that I could use in my act. Awesome. Yeah. Child labor. Awesome. <laughs> so this, so this this was good this was good for all of us until he he uh, began using the teachers as uh, uh, as objects of fun and uh, would uh, joke all the time all the time and I would say to him can't you can't you wait for little lunch or recess or lunchtime or and, and, oh, no, the moment will have passed. And I kind of get that. Yes. That's, that's like, yeah, that's just speaking like a professional comedian. You just have to risk it and go for it. So he would do many, many jokes, and some of them would work. And then he'd ask me about those jokes, and some of them. So he'd, like, pre-tested them. It was fantastic. How has comedy stayed in, in his life throughout from child? To well, I'm very disappointed that he is not a comedian. Uh, because we thought that he would be, and it's an interesting career. Uh, but he's just uh, well. I'll come, I'll come to that later. He's still very funny, and he likes to present in public, which is unusual for someone who has many traits that would be on the autism spectrum. So, uh, at one parent-teacher evening, a teacher said to me, a kind of a puffed-up teacher, said. Um, it's not my role to be made fun of. And I'm thinking to myself, wow, it probably is, actually. 
<laughs> but anyway, so bad leadership from me, I must say, in the family, uh, on all fronts. Uh, and my wife, Deborah, is an educator, but we were, uh, in fact, she's teaching at school, at a primary school today. But, uh, you know, we support the kids rather than the institution. Um, you support your own kids. And then I get a phone call at the end of year seven. So he is just 13. But the principal says, Mr. Marks, his teachers don't think he's funny. So this is like a phone call out of the blue. Like out of the blue. So his teachers don't think he's funny. So I say what any comedian would say, but do his classmates think he's funny? <laughs> and he said, Mr. Marks, it's questions like that that put Bill in the predicament in which he finds himself today. And he was expelled. Oh, no. Was, this was a private oh. school. This is a private school. What? Um, I know. So there are other kids at that school who had done lots of mischievous things. And oh. one of his uh, friends, a, a young uh, Russian migrant, got a petition together to say, Bill, makes us laugh. Other kids do terrible things, and he listed some of the terrible things that you know, 12 and 13-year-old boys and girls can do. But it's not fair that he's being expelled. The Russian boy, who, who's still a friend of Bill's, um, and he got 60 signatures. Uh, it wasn't persuasive for the hierarchy. And I said to, to this boy, why did you stop at 60? And he said, well, it, it felt like it would be enough, which I thought was a pretty good point. Yes. <laughs> anyway, heroic tilt at the windmill of authority. Um, and so Bill then went to a government school for a couple of years. Um, we couldn't get him into another private school with a, with a bad track record. Oh. And he had a bunch of um, suspensions. For the, uh, same, for the same crime of being funny? Um, yes, but as he got a bit more into the 13, 14, 15-year-old, he was a, bit, was a bit more I'm smarter than you oh, yeah. um, to the teachers. Uh, and some teachers got him and some teachers didn't. Uh, the librarian was terrific and uh, introduced him to lots of books that had huge numbers of, you know, sequels. So kids like ours love these, you know, again and again and yes, again, the, yes. the episodic nature. Yes. Um, and so that, that was good. And then eventually, after a couple of years, we got him into another private school in fact, he applied for this private school immediately after his initial expulsion, and the principal interviewed him with, with my wife and I present, and he said, well, what's the biggest word you know? And he said, um, I can't remember the word, but the principal hadn't heard it. And uh, and it, 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 rather than saying, well, that's a really good word, um, I'll have to look it up, he thought that our kid was being a smart alley, which he probably was. But he asked, he, got, he was asked the question. Oh, um, so anyway, anyway, fast forward a couple of years, and uh, he got into year ten, and was mucking up in class. Got put on a Sunday detention a number of times, and one time he asked the teacher in charge to borrow his USB stick to access his homework. Um, and uh, he planted some uh, bug in the oh teacher's computer. 
and gained access to the school, uh, school uh, finance systems and staffing and schedules and everything, as well as, of course, the exams. So in the middle of this year, this boy got straight A's, which we were really pleased about. But next to each, you know, uh, grade was a comment. Bill would even pass this subject if he handed in an assignment now and then. Um, Bill could do better, especially if he turned up to class. So it's total disconnect. Mm. Uh, he was a very bad hustler. Uh, but he, and he could have done terrible things to the system. We were, we were informed that it was a huge crime um, and he could have stolen money and done all of this sort of stuff, but he was just focusing on himself. <laughs> um, so he was invited to leave that school at the end of year 10. Oh, my goodness. Uh, so he he'd, he'd acquired some interest in computing and self-taught and trying to show and probably succeeding that he was smarter than than other people, especially his teachers. And then he went to TAFE. He said, okay, school's not for you. Go to TAFE. And he went to TAFE and he he wanted to get into the TAFE system. Now, TAFE is a massive government department. So, you know, you can, if you can hack into TAFE, then you're well on the way to being, you know, a worldwide hacker. So this so became day, his that, goal to be somehow he sort of set his sights. He wanted to be what he calls a white hat hacker. Oh my god! To test the effectiveness of uh, networks, but to show that he's smarter than other people. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so one day he's sitting at his lunch. He, he finally breaks in, and that's all he wanted to do. He got into the system. Good, done that. Minute he gets down. So less than a minute. A few minutes later. Um, Two burly guys uh, approach him in, in uniform and say, have you been sitting at this desk for, you know, a certain number of minutes? Yes. Is this your student ID number? Yes. Come with us. Oh, my God. So he stood up and they walked him to the edge of the, this huge campus and said, keep going. Oh. Like, don't come back. Oh. So he was really surprised. He didn't realize what was going on. He didn't realize that what he'd done was so huge. Um, anyway, I, I then went to a return from suspension meeting at TAFE where he was allowed to bring a support person as well as a parent. So this very eccentric but, I guess, caring teacher with a huge beard down to his waist um, uh, attended the meeting with us. and uh, like a leprechaun. <laughs> Yeah, like I don't know, it's something like an old, like an old, like an old sage or something. Track. And he saw it as a political opportunity to score some points against TAFE, and kept saying things like, "You, you know, you should reward this guy. He showed you the weakness in your system." And I'm doing the equivalent of kicking him under the table and saying, "We just want an opportunity for Bill to apologise and to be to be returning." So unfortunately, he never got his year. His what? What's it called? Certificate four in uh, networking uh, from TAFE. So that was a great disappointment. And I put an ad in the Financial Review saying, "Computer whiz kid looking for first job." And to their credit, a, a, a large travel company with a network of travel agents um, gave him a help desk job. Awesome. Uh, concurrently. He was doing some Microsoft and Cisco accreditations 
um, at, at uh, various night schools and, on, and online and getting um, accredited. This um, travel uh, company, major travel company, um, didn't want to pay for new licenses and hadn't updated its software for some time. Uh, various mainstream software and proprietary and, and particular travel software and also their um, antivirus software. And so he kept asking for it to happen um, and they said, no, no, don't do it. Anyway, he couldn't stop himself after about 10 months. And one day he just upgraded it all. So it was a huge huge thing and a huge cost to the company of course um, but it was if you think about it clearly it's the right thing to do because you're better protected and this was I guess 10 years ago so there was still malware you know coming through you know you can imagine a major corporation not uh, not doing that so he did the right thing but he's a you know very junior help desk guy he didn't have the authority to do that and he'd been specifically asked not to do that so then we get called to oh <laughs> called to an HR meeting, oh no. and they were just going to give him a warning. But he said, "You know what? This is not for me." And uh, so at this stage, his peer group was doing the HSC, and he'd been self-taught. So we filled in some forms for him to go to, to go to Macquarie University here in Sydney on the basis of mature age because he got some work and to their great credit they accepted him which was amazing so he ended up in first year uni um, alongside his cohort his chronological cohort that's amazing and, uh, so he's focused on all these things and i'm sure we all know computer people they're they're a bit focused and uh, he got involved with uh, some competitions and he did well in one although he didn't win it was for a, um, a medical device, and it was good for Bill to realise that although he was smart, there are people who are even smarter. Mm. Uh, and that's and where do you find them? You find them at uni. So we encouraged him to hang around with those sorts of people. And then he got his degree. It took a while, it took probably five years to get a three-year degree. And he was working part time, which was just as well because I said I'll pay for the number of units that you're meant to get. You know, but if you fail them, then you, you have to pay when you repeat. So he did that, and he paid him for himself, and he was earning good money uh, uh, coding. And um, and then he said, oh, "I want to do a PhD." And and we say, "Well, you know, to do a PhD, you really need an honours degree. You need uh, a very good honours degree. Maybe you can get by with a master's degree, uh, which you can sort of complete by just doing one subject at a time." Oh no. And he'd been following the research of a particular guy. He went to see that guy. That guy said, well, yeah, okay, uh, probably. Um, why don't you apply? So he applied to the University of Sydney, and he rang me very upset, saying they've only accepted me into a Master's of Philosophy program. And I said, oh, where are you? Oh, I'm at a public swimming pool, the university's pool swimming pool. I said, okay, well, just wait there. Don't touch anything. So I, I quickly went there and I said, oh, show me on your smartphone where the offer is. You know, dear Bill, you know, congratulations, you've been accepted to the Masters of Philosophy by Research. I said, okay, so if I push this button, it'll be accepted. Oh, yeah. 
I push the button. <laughs> <laughs> it comes in and then email comes back and says, oh, congratulations, you know, we look forward to seeing you at the orientation, yada, yada, yada. I said, okay, you'd be able to transfer. Oh, I don't know. But I've told people I've got into the PhD program. So, you know, it's very, mm, proud. you know, how would they not accept me? I said, oh, well, you know, you'll get in. And so he, he began the Masters of Philosophy and about three months later applied to transfer, transferred out a hiccup. And now he's 28. He's submitted his PhD in medicine wow. and is waiting for the examiners to give him feedback. So he hasn't passed it. That's so this is amazing. a boy who is just, he's just, I mean, and I think, uh, Anna, you and I have just discussed before that there would be no, um, no one working in laboratories, no discoveries made over the millennia. Mm. Unless, unless there were these sorts of people mm. who were just focused mm. and ignoring uh, mm. one final story. I remember at, at, um, at primary school, it, it, Bill just reported this to us. A teacher was going mad at him in the playground. And he just looked up at the teacher and said, you're, you're not meant to yell at us. We're only kids. And then she started to swear. <laughs> and, and, she, and he said, and teachers are not meant to swear either. No. So he had no, no way of reading the face of the teacher mm. who was just having <laughs> a meltdown. Their own meltdown. <laughs> But it wasn't that he lacked empathy. Mm. He was just puzzled. Mm-hmm. Oh, this lady's this lady's going crazy. Uh, now, it it has worried me because it, you know if you were, I did think that what happens when he grows up if he goes to a pub as young people do mm. and there's somebody about to be mm. violent and you misread the situation. Mm. Um, but he's picked up lots of skills along the way. Although recently he went on a date and he said to the girl, would you like another date? And she said, no. Oh. And we this this was reported to us. We said, well, Bill, you, you have to find out why. Yeah. Right? Just, you've got to learn. So he, he rang her up and said, you know, I'm not hassling you, but I just want to know why so I can improve for some other date. And she said, What's with the bow tie? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love that. Oh, I love so, him. So, yeah, he's a wonderful young man um, and brilliant in many areas and a bit um, slow to, you know, catch on to social cues in other areas. Mm. I mean, some people are married with kids at 28. You know, mm. uh, not many though. Uh, but you'll get, you'll get there. You'll get there. He, he, yeah. He, well, that's right. Not, not this generation. Yeah. yeah. Those stories are so familiar, and I wonder. You said when he was very small that you noticed the way he was um, observing and taking in information about his brothers. Did you know anything about autism at that time, uh, or did you just think that's an interesting? Yes. Yeah. Why did you uh, know? Because- because my wife's a special ed teacher. Right. And so, yeah. And we just felt um, we didn't want to go down the medicalizing, pathologizing, labeling route. Mm. And it 
at the school that he was expelled from in year seven, they suggested he could be in the special class. Mm. And we thought, no thanks. Mm. Like, uh, so it's not a distrust of the teaching profession or the distrust of the medical profession, but we just felt that, you know, he just needed uh, love and care and he'd get there in the end. Mm. And one of the things that we've heard from the experts when they say that diagnosis is helpful is because it helps educate the parents, but you guys already got it and you've got uh, this specialised education expert in your household. So in many ways you gave him all the things that another couple who didn't have that might have had to seek from other experts. I mean, I'm a big fan of... um, of education, and I'm not anti-psychiatry or anti-psychology. Mm. I just didn't think it was necessary. Well, it doesn't yeah. sound like for you that it was. We talk quite a lot about how hard it is for parents to, if they do seek one and then they get a diagnosis, for a lot of the time it's very hard to come to terms with for a whole lot of different reasons, and some of it is about how others might judge that child then with that label, and it's very personal. I mean, I think... In our case, we had to because our daughter couldn't get through the day in the mainstream system without being so, so um, out of control behaviourally that she was suffering and everyone was suffering. And also, you know, the other thing we talk about a lot is that autism spectrum disorder presents in such different ways that there's no one answer to any approach. It's just, you know, I think the more the parents agree with you absolutely that love and support are probably the most important things but it sounds like you were both really lucky to have a really deep understanding of humans and of education and of development that you could sort of manage that for him without anyone else necessarily being involved. You know, you, your children are still your children no matter what age you are. And so being, you know, our kids, he's our, he's our youngest at 28 and at age 29. And so we're still involved and he's coming around to dinner with his brothers tonight. Yeah, it's... Um, in, it, what happened in previous centuries? People just, uh, they just had families and, you know, they had large families and some kids behaved in different ways and just kind of dragged them along. Mm. They just did everything with everyone else. Mm. Hopefully, um, hopefully. I feel like maybe sometimes some parents maybe weren't as accepting and loving and um, if they saw behaviour that they weren't expecting or they didn't think they were more concerned about how society might judge them, then perhaps they weren't as accommodating and supportive. I mean, you know, who knows? But Well, it's certainly, it's certainly uh, terrible, isn't it, the, uh, the, uh, the judging by peers, the, the comments. Uh, well, there's kind of a sausage factory element to the, the curriculum. Um, just one way to progress, and that's, that's crazy. Although, to be fair, people do talk about different pathways to further study and different. There are many more different jobs now than there were um, ten years ago, and, and uh, yeah, there's lots of positive uh, support that's available. Mm. As parents, I mean, thank you so much for sharing the story of Bill and it's, it's amazing where he is now and, and the journey he's been, the highs and, and the challenges. Were there, as a parent, were there times along the way that it was, you know, obviously uh, Bill's an amazing guy with such intellect. Were there times when he was, you know, getting suspended from TAFE and no schools would take him in that you lost faith in his ability to, to keep following his passions and, and really, you know, 
come up with something amazing? Yeah, I mean, I suppose we thought yeah, this kid may never leave home. <laughs> that's, uh, that's one thing. Um, and he was the first to leave, actually. He left before his older brothers. We were lucky to have uh, some some grandparents, that is our parents, uh, to help for respite. Mm. Um, although we didn't think of it as, as respite, it's just you go into nanas for the night, that sort of thing. Um, so that's terrific. And now we've got a baby granddaughter ourselves and uh, we can see the pleasure from, from the grandparents' point of view that they're uh, looking after a child. So it's a, it's a real win-win. And I think we saw it before, but now we're experiencing it. You know, being a comedian, you don't really worry about benchmarking yourself with general society anyway. Mm-hmm. So that's um, we've lived in in some undesirable suburbs. I suppose we still do in Hurstville and Mascot. You know, we're now in Waterloo, so we're not on the on the up and up financially. Uh, you know, you just you just like well, that that's that's our world. So I suppose if um, if we were worried about too much, I mean, everyone cares a little bit about society, of course, and, you know, but you, you don't worry too much about that. That's I really I sometimes I think that some kids get it; they're so lucky. Like if the, if the stork was coming and choosing the family for the child. You know, they, they got that one right, didn't they? Like, you were the right family to have a child who um, well, was expected. He says, he says that um, <laughs> it was good that we had three kids because we had two others to practice on until we got it right. Oh, I love him. He's funny. He's hilarious. He's absolutely hilarious. How has comedy helped you dealing with the challenges of, of life and also the challenges of, you know, having to, to meet with so many school school boards and be told that, you know, your son is invited not to be here. Well, one of the unlovable things about comedians is that whatever happens to them is material. And so somebody can be telling you something really terrible um, about you or about your children or about your points of view, and you just got a mental notepad. This will be, you say, oh, that's a good line. <laughs> I can um, see so. how this could be hilarious. <laughs> that's exactly right. So... Yeah, if you have that attitude, in fact, there's a thing called the, the comic attitude, which is a filter. And once you have, once you develop that filter, which often takes a long time, eight or ten years, then everything that happens in your life can be put through that that filter. And that's that's your comic voice. I think that comedy is a much easier uh, gig than, you know, painting or music or because you get such such good material while you're doing it. And often people will speak to you beforehand um, and tell you what they find funny and you can meet their needs. And, of course, during a show, if it's not going well, you can change, change tack. Mm. Whereas a film actor, you know, you do a joke on film, it, it'll be uh, 12 months before you hear whether it's funny or not. Did you study um, um, any performance or...? Did you study anything form uh, academically around comedy? Yeah, I did far too much study. What yeah. did you study? Well, I did, I did drama to start with. I did Korean drama at uh, New England in Armadale. Mm. And uh, that was a kind of a, 
an unusual experience for Australia because it was mostly living away from home. So you know, you could, as young people, do lots of uh, uh, lots of production without the need to return to mum and dad. Then I did an MBA at the AGSM. I just and, uh, wish that I was in your class. I did an I did two thirds of an MBA at AGSM. I would have loved you to have been in the class. That would have made it so much more fun. It was very boring otherwise. Well, I'm fond of my time at the AGSM, and then I went to Harvard and did another master's in uh, government there. Oh. So a lot of the uh, material is is about bureaucracy and hierarchy. Um, and shifts in power, and that's a lot of comedy anyway, is about, you know, the servant taking on the master in, in ancient times, and in modern times that, that turns out to be, uh, turns out to be, you know, criticising the Prime Minister or criticising the, the, the CEO or criticising the, the non-profit, you know, the, the, the charity guru who's just plundered the, the finances of the charity. And the, uh, and with doing that with humour means that other people might be more inclined to listen, more inclined to sort of agree or think about it instead of doing it in, a, in an aggressive sort of way. Yeah, it sugars the pill, but it also, it's very, it's co-creation mm. because by laughing or heckling or even listening, you're, you're pacing the performance for the performer. And the great thing is it's only the performer who gets paid. So the audience is doing at least half the work. It's terrific. Just to secret, don't tell anybody. <laughs> well, they paid to get in, so you know, they're paying for the experience. Was it always was it always comedy for you, Rodney? Um, yes. Yeah. Did you feel yeah. like nothing else could have you couldn't have done anything? I mean, quite a lot of the comedians that I've watched in documentaries or when they talk about their own journey, they say they just couldn't do anything else. It wasn't wasn't an option for them. Well, yes. I mean, looking at it in COVID-19, uh, when things are flatlined, makes you think, well, well what else could I do now? Mm. Um, and the answer is nothing. <laughs> That's mm. shocking. Do you, what do you, what do you think with Hannah Gadsby using her platform of being a very, very contagious comedian, um, you know, she says in one of her shows that, you know, some people call her, a, I don't know, like a, that she sort of came out of nowhere. She was like, well, I've actually been working for 10 years, but it feels, it looks like you come out of nowhere when you suddenly become well-known. But it seems to be a really um, untapped avenue to build awareness and understanding and again when you overlay it with humor then you also um your audience also cares for you a little bit more which is so uh important when we're asking people to accept difference if they're coming at it personally from a place where they feel connected because that's what it seems to me when someone laughs at a joke it's because they go oh i I agree you know, or I understand, or I know what you mean, or I've had that experience myself. So it becomes, as you say, a co-creation or a personal, more personal experience. Seems like a really beautiful channel to get these kind of ideas across. I, uh, I think she's a great talent and she's got a, uh, you know, she's got an attitude, a comic attitude that is clear and, and other people don't have such an attitude. So she's got her own niche and it's something that she can continue in for a long time. 
Um, I, I think I'm right in thinking that she's forty. Um, I, I, I remember about. I don't. I don't remember her ever mentioning it, but it's, it sounds about right. Yeah. And 40, 40 is a really good age to be a comedian. Um, you've got to have a lived-in face. You've got to have some blood on the floor. Mm. You know, if, uh, if 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 a comedian, if a guy gets up at twenty-one, like like Jordan here, and says at a microphone, "My girlfriend left me today," the audience thinks, "Who cares? He's twenty-one. <laughs> He's." Is young and vibrant and good looking. He'll find someone tonight. Mm. Um, but if he's yeah, forty, <laughs> <laughs> if he's forty and says my wife left me, then people lean in because there's there's a bit of tragedy there. There's a story there. There's like okay, and forty is well, it's pretty good because you can still reach down to people in their twenties and you can reach up to people in their fifties. That's what I'm uh, loving my forties. I've never been happier. I've never been more sure of myself. I've never been more willing to take risks or to feel like I, you know, that I back myself. It's it's a good age. So I think we'll see uh, Hannah Gadsby for, for decades if that's what she wants. Mm. You know, some people use the stage as therapy, which is which is okay. And then when they're when they're healed, mm. they don't need to continue. Mm. Well, that's how she started um, her first one, her first show. She basically said, "I'm done because I'm using this platform to make fun of myself, and I can't. It's not that's not what I need to do." But then it was so wildly popular that she was like, oh, "I'll do another show." <laughs> <laughs> She's a genius. No, no. Well, that is the problem with self-deprecating humour, because um, there's only a, it's a slippery slope from self-deprecation to self-hate. Mm. So it's good that she figured that out mm. and moved on and without having to have a new career. Mm. She's very, yeah. very clever. And how do you see the space of comedy in advocacy going forward? Comedy generally in the world or in Australia or what? Using, I think using comedy is a, in unconventional ways to be able to present, you know, advocacy in, in what ways do you see it as being able to be an effective tool? I think... Uh, there are people whose niche is uh, is health and laughter and uh, and the healing power of humour. Generally speaking, the, uh, the political correctness is uh, making it more complicated. You have to be more thoughtful about what you do, uh, not just being aware of being um, the potential of being racist, ageist, sexist, genderist, homophobic, but specific movements. Because normally uh, comedians would address the news of the day. But if you address Black Lives Matter or Me Too or COVID or the bushfires, it's, it's not like, um, it's not like it was. People, people will be outraged. And the safest path is to talk about yourself or a version of yourself. And hopefully some aspects of your own life resonate with other people's lives and therefore it's not a it's not a superiority um, journey. Ricky Gervais is but, a genius at doing that though. He still doesn't be bothered by the fact that there's a political correctness. He pushes straight into Rick, that. Ricky Gervais is amazing. He He's is a amazing. genius, yep. And he, he does get away with it. Mm. But most of us are not 
not Ricky Gervais or mm-hmm. Jerry Seinfeld, mm. and we have to think of the next 20 or 30 gigs. Mm. You know, if you are accused of something, if you're the, the guy who made a racist joke mm. 20 years ago, mm. uh, it's still circulating there on YouTube. Mm. It'll just, yeah, so you just have to be, I mean, I don't know what Ricky Gervais would have been like at 21 in mm. this environment. But now he's famous and he's rich and he's like, you can take me or leave me. Mm. So, and the same with Jerry Seinfeld. You, mm. you do have to, it's a balance between meeting the needs of your art form and meeting the needs of your, your audience. Mm. So I, I think that if you view yourself more of a as a graphic artist than as a fine artist, um, you, you'll have a longer career. So interesting. We only asked you for an hour of your time and we've well taken that up. So, um, you know, some of our guests have agreed to come back. (laughs) No no pressure though. If you, uh, you know, if you feel like ever coming back, we'd love to have you. Well, I'd love to keep in touch, uh, uh, Jordan and Anna, and good luck uh, with uh, your your podcasts and your mission. Thank you. Your professional and personal mission. Thank you. It's great to have you on board with us. You're a wondrous person and a beautiful father by all counts. So thank you. 